is there a right to protest under the constitution of india and if yes what are the contours of this right hi everyone and welcome to the fifth episode of ode to the court now this episode is special because it represents a departure from my usual discussions on the cpc in this period of social distancing and quarantine or should i say janta curfew i'm trying to expand the scope of this podcast for one brief episode the code to which i am paying homage need not be the code of civil procedure but you can think of it as the law in general you see in light of the corona outbreak we seem to have forgotten all about the citizenship amendment act and the protests surrounding its enactment now in these turbulent times i for one think that it's very important to keep the conversation alive just because we are confined to our homes does not mean that the threats to the constitution cease to exist now one such threat is the clamping down on protests by the government in this episode i will examine the right to protest whether it is a right at all and if it is what is the constitutional context in which it can be placed to do this i will be discussing and analyzing the judgment of the single bench of the calcutta high court in the matter of kamil shetyunisky versus union of india now kamil is a master student from poland studying comparative literature at jadavpur university by all reports he is something of a scholar with mastery over various contemporary and ancient indian languages and dialects their literature history philosophy and various associated socio cultural fields as well now as some of you might be aware kamil was the polish student who participated in the anti caa rally held in kolkata he was identified by the government and they basically issued a leave india notice in addition to an order of expulsion now this basically has the effect of cancelling his student visa and he has to for the lack of a better word get the fuck out of india now in an eloquently written judgment delivered just 3 days ago justice shobhoshachi bhattacharya set aside this order of expulsion he couched his forceful and evocative opinion in the language of fundamental rights transformative constitutionalism and basic human rights as well now i have spent a fair amount of time reading this judgment and i have identified two broad areas that i would like to discuss the first is constitutional law and how it interacts substantively with the right of the petitioner to protest and the second is administrative law and how it interacts procedurally with the order of expulsion issued against the petitioner now lastly i'll try to analyze the court's rationale in refusing to rely on the contents of a sealed cover report that was submitted to it by the union of india now <clears throat> let's jump straight into the constitution and specifically i'll be dealing with part 3 of the constitution which deals with fundamental rights now in his writ petition before the court two rights were invoked by the petitioner to to justify his actions the first is the right to life and personal liberty under article 21 and the second is the right to freedom of speech and expression under article 
Now, if you have the bare text of the Constitution handy right now, I'd like you to read the opening lines of both these provisions. And I invite you to pause this episode and try and see if you can spot a very key difference between the two opening lines. Now, as I'm sure you've noticed, Article 21 applies to all persons, while Article 19 only applies to all citizens. Now, if you spotted this distinction, well done, because it'll get really important in just a bit. So let's start with Article 21. It extends to all persons living inside India, be they citizens or foreigners. Now, the court falls back on the well-recognized expansive interpretation of Article 21 and states as follows, and I quote, It has been held in a plethora of judgments and is now well settled that the right to life and personal liberty does not merely pertain to a bare existence and meaningless freedom. All persons living in India are guaranteed the right to life and personal liberty, which it is well settled by judicial propositions is not restricted to bare existence. The expressions life and personal liberty also include basic necessities and amenities to live a life worthy of human existence and the liberties associated therewith." End quote. Now there is of course judicial precedence for applying this right to foreigners in the specific context of protests. In the case of Jonathan Bond, the Kerala High Court held that the principles embodied in Article 21 of the Constitution is applicable to a foreigner as well, as long as the foreigner continues to stay in India. The court held in that case that since the appellant had out of curiosity happened to address a condolence meeting organized by a political group, he could not be treated as a radical and could not be confined to jail. The court goes further in the present case, that is the Calcutta High Court's decision, and it explains the specific form and shape that Article 21 takes when it is applied to Camille. Now, there is a lot of discussion on the academic credentials that Camille has, and the court notes that he is, in fact, an expert on the history, language, culture, and the society of certain regions in India and South Asia. The court points out that the very premise of these qualifications provide for the petitioner's ability to engage in such political rallies. What the court is basically trying to ask is, what's the point to having these qualifications if you cannot use them for anything? In this regard, the court states, and I quote, In view of the petitioner's knowledge in political situations and socio-cultural issues of South Asia, it would be an unreasonable restriction on the petitioner to restrain him from even participating in political rallies, unless the same amounts to sedition or any other offence envisaged in Indian law. Now, this analysis is valuable, I think because it grounds the application of the otherwise expansive Article 21 to circumstances that are specific to the life and personal liberty of the petitioner. Now, later on in the judgment, the court explicitly states, and I quote, Political activity itself, in the absence of any specific allegation that the petitioner was actively involved with a political party which is banned, is a part of the bunch of rights which come along with the right to life and personal liberty. Now, that was Article 21. 
After this, the court goes a little above and beyond. It is not satisfied with affording the petitioner only the protection under Article 21. Now, throughout the text of this judgment, a reader will pick up on the desire of the court to somehow apply the right under Article 19 to the petitioner as well. But as we are already aware, this right is only accessible to citizens, as is clear from its bare text. Now, the court gets around this by holding that such rights, as in the right to freedom of speech and expression, and I quote, emanate not only from the Constitution of India, but are basic rights inherent in all human beings, as recognized time and again by the United Nations, as well as several charters and treaties between all the nations in the world. Hence, such rights cannot be fettered by the limited use of the terms citizens in Article 19 of the Constitution. End quote. Now the court goes further than this. It doubles down and it states, and I quote, The source of such rights is not merely the Constitution, which itself might be the grand norm of Indian legislation, but also inhere in a human being, whether she or he is an Indian or a foreigner. End quote. Now it's very easy, you know, to dismiss all of this as judicial acrobatics by claiming that this holding is an unwarranted extension of Article 19. Because after all, the words of Article 19 are very clear. It starts with, all citizens of India shall have the right. So thus, on a bare reading of this part of the judgment, it seems as if by granting the petitioner the protection under Article 19, Justice Bhattacharya's holding is going against a very clear bar set in the text of the provision itself. Now, <clears throat> I think one can understand why he would want to do this. Because the central issue here involves the act of protest. While bringing it under the ambit of Article 21, that is the right to life and personal liberty, it might be considered to be a bit of a stretch. But the same cannot be said for the application of Article 19. This is because I think the act of protest is a very direct manifestation of free speech and expression, which is protected by Article 19 and not such a direct manifestation of the right to life and personal liberty. But the problem, of course, is that the petitioner is not a citizen of India. And so Article 19 is merely an attractive item in a store where the petitioner can at best be a window shopper. But the court nonetheless chooses to give him the protection under Article 19 by expanding its scope. Now, the most attractive argument against this holding is, of course, that such an interpretation of Article 19 renders the distinction between citizens and non-citizens completely meaningless. So the drafters, in their wisdom, chose to offer the protection of certain fundamental rights to all persons in India. But at the same time, they reserved a set of fundamental rights for the exclusive protection of the citizens in India. For instance, the rights under Articles 14 and 21 are not restricted to citizens of India, but they are applicable to every person. So to afford the petitioner the Article 21 right is completely in line with the text of the Constitution. But to also then extend the Article 19 protection to the petitioner would seemingly go against the explicit text of the Constitution. But I think that there is a justification for this, although it comes out a little bit later in the judgment and in a slightly different form. But this is my understanding. 
So the court states, and I quote, Article 19 is not couched in restrictive or negative language. Hence, the right to life and personal liberty, along with all associated rights, including the right to have political views and participate in political activities, cannot be curtailed or fettered since Article 21 acts in harmony with Article 19 and the two articles do not cancel each other out. So the confinement of certain rights and basic liberties to an individual validly staying on Indian soil cannot be said to have been withdrawn merely by the confinement of certain basic rights to Indian citizens. Now, before I analyze this, I'd like to quote one last excerpt from the judgment. The court goes on to say, and I quote, The rights to life and personal liberty and associated rights do not emanate from the Constitution itself, but are basic human rights, universally accepted by civilized societies, and merely recognized in the Constitution of India. So let's break this down. I think two key points emerge for our discussion. The first is that the content of Article 19, that is free speech and expression, is not exclusively located within the confines of Article 19. And the second point is that a link has been created between the two fundamental rights, 19 and 21. Now let's take these points one by one. First, Justice Bhattacharya has held that the freedom of speech and expression, although recognized by Article 19, is not created by it. In other words, every person has an inherent right to free speech simply by virtue of being human. The mere conferment of this right on citizens by Article 19 does not imply that the right itself ceases to exist for everyone else. In the words of the court, Article 19 does not use any negative or exclusionary language. And so all Article 19 does is that it explicitly recognizes this right for Indian citizens. And the basic form of the right, which existed anyway, remains wholly unaffected by Article 19. Now, this is a throwback to what Justice Khanna had said in his ADM Jabalpur dissent. Certain rights predate the Constitution, and you cannot use even a constitutional mechanism to suspend or curtail those rights. They inhere in a person simply by virtue of her being human. Now, most recently, this reasoning was also used in the Puttaswamy 1 majority opinion. But before we get drawn into the larger debate, let me bring you back to what this means for this case. What Justice Bhattacharya has held is basically that the use of the word citizen in the absence of any other restrictive language in Article 19 does not automatically imply that the basic right of free speech, which existed before Article 19 recognized it for the citizens of India, does not exist for everyone else. Now, it may be argued, of course, that the very use of the word citizen is evidence of restrictive language. But according to me, Justice Bhattacharya is looking for negative phrasing. In other words, if the article were to say that no person other than a citizen of India shall have the right to freedom of speech and expression, then that would probably satisfy the standards set by the court. Then Justice Bhattacharya probably would have refrained 
from recognizing the petitioner's right to free speech while inside India. Now, this is the first limb of his reasoning. And at this point in the argument, it is a little sketchy, admittedly, because there is no constitutional avenue which allows the petitioner to access this so-called inherent or basic right to free speech. So essentially, the situation is that there are two rights. One is a constitutionally accessible right to free speech under 191A, but that is only there for citizens. And then there is a basic and inherent right to free speech in a dem democratic society, which is accessible to every person. But now we need to find a constitutional mechanism which allows every person to access this basic right. Justice Bhattacharya finds this constitutional avenue by linking Article 21 to 19. Now, this is the second limb of his argument. And it is basically something that was laid down, in my understanding at least, as far back as the bank nationalization case, or R.C. Cooper versus Union of India, where the court had basically held that the fundamental rights in Part 3 do not exist in watertight compartments and that they must be read conjunctively. Essentially, fundamental rights don't exist in silos and the effects of one may be felt on the other. Now, Justice Chandrachud had used this in his Sabrimala opinion to link the interpretations of certain elements of Articles 25 and 26. And in this case, Justice Shobhoshachi Bhattacharya has stated that the right of the petitioner as recognized by Article 21 of the Constitution, is to be harmoniously read with his right under Article, 9, with Article 19, which operates in a different field pertaining to Indian citizens only. So he seems to indicate <clears throat> that in order for the petitioner to fully enjoy his right under Article 21, he must be given access to his basic right to free speech that exists outside Article 19, supra-constitutionally. So the two limbs of the reasoning can be seen as two steps. The first step is to recognize that Article 19 is not the exclusive repository of the right to free speech, and that being a supra-constitutional right, it predates the Constitution and exists outside it. In other words, Article 19 merely recognizes this right for Indian citizens and does not do anything at all to negatively affect the basic right of free speech which inures to all persons anyway. The second step of this argument is a little misleading. He's saying that the right to life and personal liberty under Article 21 allows the petitioner to access the right to free speech under Article 19. But what he really means to say is that the petitioner's right to life under Article 21 allows him to access his basic right to free speech, which is, again, a supra-constitutional right and exists outside Article 19. Now, this reasoning is very grand and in some sense extremely elegant, and I agree with the core theory of it. But my small problem with it is that by extracting this right to free speech from within the confines of Article 19, and then by conferring it upon every person, as in non-citizens, there is a very distinct possibility that the court has elevated a basic right over a fundamental right. This is because this basic right, this supra-constitutional right, which predates the constitution and exists outside it, has no explicit limitations at all. Article 19 right, on the other hand, which recognizes the right to free speech for Indian citizens, has textual limitations 
under Article 19, sub clause 2. For various reasons such as the security of the state, public order, decency, morality, etc., the state can enact laws in the nature of reasonable restrictions to the right of free speech. So on the one hand, you have a fundamental right with various limitations, which is for citizens. And then on the other hand, you have a supra-constitutional right that has no limitations and is accessible by everyone else. So by introducing Article 19 for citizens, you're basically saying that it was the intention of the drafting assembly to give the citizens of India a right that is lesser and more curtailed than a supposedly supra-constitutional right. Now, the simple counter to this, of course, is that my argument right now was a red herring for the simple reason that the supra-constitutional right may be said to have more limitations because the limitations are now within the ambit of the discretion of the court than the constitutionally recognized fundamental right under Article 19. And so the question of elevating one right above the other doesn't arise at all. Now let's leave this aside and let's talk about one aspect of the ratio of this judgment in relation to constitutional law. So with respect to these two rights and how they interact with protests, dehors the question of whether they apply to a foreigner or not. The court has basically explicitly now held that the mere activity of participation in a political rally is included within the right to life and personal liberty and freedom of speech and expression. So more generally, the court has basically held that in the present day of personal liberties being reiterated by the Supreme Court time and again, the powers such as the ability of a union to expel foreigners ought to be read in the appropriate context, attributing a liberal intent of the constitution makers behind such powers. Now this can be thought of, of course, as an element of transformative constitutionalism as well. So this was the first segment of this episode. And before I move on to the second, let me take a short musical interlude brought to you exclusively by Union Minister Ramdas Athavale. Take it away, sir. And I'm back. Now, the only point that I'm trying to make with that is please wash your hands, stay inside your homes, and only step out if absolutely essential. And I guess that go corona is one way to put it. Now let's move on. So now I'm coming to the second segment of this episode, which is administrative law. So having held that the right to protest and participate in political activities is available to the petitioner, the court now moves to examining the validity of the order of expulsion and the Leave India notice, and it tests these against the principles of administrative law. The court finds that the discretion under Section 3 of the 1946 Foreigners Act, which was exercised by the central government, cannot be unfettered and arbitrary, unless spelt out explicitly in the section itself. So it seems to have held that unless an unfettered power is explicitly provided for in a provision, then the usual principles of administrative law will apply. And in this case, the court has held that the principle of audi ulterim partem was violated because the petitioner was not given a chance to put forward his case. He was given a date for a hearing, 
but the order of expulsion predated this hearing, which is just silly and is essentially, in effect, not giving him a fair hearing at all. Furthermore, the order of expulsion itself did not disclose any reasons for the said expulsion. The court stated, and I quote, reason is the soul of any order, end quote. And so in the absence of a reasoned order and depriving the petitioner of the opportunity to present his case, the order cannot be called a valid one. So such an unreasoned order cannot operate against the subsistence of a valid visa held by the petitioner. Now, in any case, the court holds, irrespective of the nature or width of powers exercised by the central government under Section 3, the necessity for disclosing reasons for curtailing an accrued right of the petitioner cannot be dis uh, dispensed with. So, the ratio of this decision thus also encompasses an interpretation of Section 3 of the Foreigners Act, and it holds that an order under Section 3 must necessarily include reasons. It must also be mentioned that the court goes above and beyond the bare principles of administrative law and states that in a democracy like India, the rights of any authority cannot be totally arbitrary and unrestricted. Now, furthermore, it must be noted that a validly subsisting visa has been understood by the court in the language of an accrued right to the petitioner. So the respondent union basically cited a bunch of cases to support its point, and the court distinguished the facts of most of these cases on the basis that those uses of power of expulsion was done against illegal immigrants or against trespassers, that is, foreigners whose visas had expired. However, in the present case, the court has noted that the student visa granted to Camille was in valid subsistence, and it would only expire in August of 2020 when his degree would be complete. So the court states, and I quote, the visa confers certain valuable rights on the petitioner, not merely to stay in India, but other associated rights as well, which are assured by the constitution, not only to citizens, but also to foreigners. Participation in political activities such as protests is not ipso jure barred during subsistence of this visa, essentially is what the court is trying to say. Now, the court also finds that the 1946 Act, or for that matter, any other act, does not debar any person, whether that person is an Indian citizen or a foreigner, from taking part in political activities. And thus, this cannot be a valid ground or reason for expulsion of a person. Now, later on in the judgment, the court brings in yet another angle, that of the dramatic consequences of this order. It states, and I quote, the petitioner is expecting to complete his studies in India by August 30th, 2020, on which premise the visa was extended by the central government itself. Thus, curtailing such rights, thereby ruining the academic career of the petitioner, could not have taken place without hearing the petitioner and assigning proper reasons for such curtailment. End quote. So since the consequence of this order is so drastic, and practically ruinous to the academic career of the petitioner, it is even more necessary to follow these principles of administrative law. So in summary, the subsistence of the visa of the petitioner validates his stay in India, unless withdrawn on specific grounds which have to be disclosed to the petitioner, and he must be given a valid hearing 
to put his case across. Now, I'd just like to take you back to one crucial point, and I feel that this also forms part of the broad ratio of this case, that the court understands a visa, a validly subsisting, subsisting visa, as a bundle of accrued rights. So it goes above and beyond the mere right to stay within India. It also gives that person holding that visa certain other rights in that bundle as well. And to dislodge such accrued rights, you need to follow not only the principles of administrative law, but constitutional law as well. So now let me come to the third and last part of this episode. Now, this has been a fairly long episode, and we have just one quick issue to deal with before we close. So the union respondent, uh, along completely expected lines, submitted to the court a confidential intelligence report in a sealed cover. So sealed cover reports have, as we all know, become very common. And what is even more alarming is the frequency with which such sealed cover reports are starting to form the very basis of judgments and orders. Now, this is a cause for great concern, because to determine if a decision is based on accurate factual and legal reasoning, the materials before the judge or the bench must be accessible. So this lack of transparency is acutely problematic for society at large, because the judge can't be held, held accountable. But it is even more problematic for the other party who is litigating against you, as that party is deprived of an opportunity to meet her opponent's case. And this problem is only exacerbated when the government is litigating against the common citizen. This is because the two additional issues of the power asymmetry and separation of powers also comes up. Because a person might well think that the executive or the parliament, as the case may be, is in cahoots with the judiciary. And that then becomes an issue of separation of powers. But in this case, the Calcutta High Court single bench sidestepped all of this very adeptly. It simply held that the report in question has been produced for the first time in court without the petitioner being given an opportunity of hearing the allegations contained in this report, or even less responding to such allegations. Now, to come to this holding, the court didn't even have to open the sealed cover. The ratio seems to be that if the petitioner was not privy to the contents of the report before the order was issued by the respondent authority, then such a report cannot be produced directly in court, that too in a sealed cover, to support the respondent's case. Now, it so happened that the court, that is Justice Shobhushachi Bhattacharya, did happen to look into the contents of the report. After all, who can resist? Now, the court read the report and came to the conclusion that it, wa it was not, in fact, a basis of the impugned order of expulsion. Now, the court points out that as per the report, participating in the political activities was what led to the ban. So finally, there, there seems to be a clear reason for the order of expulsion. But the court had already held that the mere participation in activities of a political nature cannot invalidate a validly subsisting visa. And so this report did not matter at all. And it was ignored by the court in arriving at its decision. So this is a valuable component of the ratio as well. And ending with a grand flourish, Justice Shobhoshachi Bhattacharya declares the impugned order of expulsion to be, and I quote, a paranoid overreaction 
contrary to the rights enshrined in Article 21 of the Indian Constitution, end quote. Setting aside the impugned order as null and void for being dehorsed the Constitution, ultra virus the Constitution and Indian law, the court directs, and I quote, the respondents and all their men, end quote, to not give any effect to the impugned order in any manner whatsoever. And thus, listeners, democracy survives yet another day. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to seeing you in the sixth episode of this podcast.